This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. That was a church in the house of uh, Bishop Philemon. He was the head of, he was the leader, was the elder of that local church. And he was a rich man, obviously, for him to have slaves. He was obviously a, a rich man, right? And his wife was also the co-leader of the church with him. Um, her name was Apia, or is it Afia, or it just sounds like a, a Ghanaian name. Maybe she was a Ghanaian woman. Praise the Lord. So his wife was Akia, and then there's a son called Akipos. So we don't know whether, some people say Akipos was, was their son. Some people say Akipos was just another person that was in the church with them, you know, but that was also an elder and stuff like that. But, you know, those were the leaders of the church in Colossae at the time. Praise God. Um, if you check the book of, um, let's start reading first. Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Hallelujah. So, um, Paul was writing the letter with Timothy in, pres- in um, present, and of course, they were writing it together with the same mind towards um, to Philemon. So, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. So, you can see that regard that Philemon was a, um, you know, a co-laborer in the gospel with Paul and Timothy. He now says, also to appear our sister, and Archippus, our, our fellow soldier. So Archippus was the wife of, um, Apostle, uh, of, of Philemon. And Archippus was either their son or someone else in the church, you know, that was um, in the church of Colossae. And to the church that meets in your home. So they were in, Colo- they were in Colossae. And, uh, um, you know, the church was meeting in their house. Hallelujah. And this thing just made me realize that, you know, I was thinking about this, and, I, and it occurred to me that maybe... Maybe we shouldn't think of um, the first century church too much as, you know, maybe, maybe we should not read, maybe we should not look at that church too anachronistically. And they may actually share a lot of similarities with us than we realize, right? Because think about it, the Corinthian church, they said at that time the Corinthian Christians were no less than 20,000-ish. And people were missing in each other's houses. Now, you know the way human beings are, human beings are very tribal in their, in their sensibilities. So it is very, very likely that um, at some point or at some time, the people in those churches that were meeting in those houses would have begun to have a sense of loyalty to the people that meet in their house. Because that means that they must have been meeting in many houses in those towns, right? Just like, like, like um, Apostle Paul tells us in the, in, uh, you know, um, in the book of Corinthians, there are people, people were meeting in houses. People were meeting in Chloe's house. People were meeting in this person's house. People were meeting in that person's house. So when Paul comes, all of them will try and gather together so that they can, you know, you can see all of them together. Praise God. Are we together? Are we together? So, if people were meeting in their houses, there's, very, very, there's, a, very, there's a likelihood that they would have begun to have a sense of, you know, tribal affiliation to the house where they meet so to seek, speak. And then that also means that we can actually think of church now, now, barring all the sense of ambition and all the sense of um, trying to build empires. If we want to think about it in a certain way, it's possible that you can think of the church now as people meeting in the houses of one person. Hallelujah. You know, we can think of it as people meeting in the house of one person. Praise God. So we can actually think of TEC as the church that meets in Samuel's house. Do you understand that kind of thing? Praise God. Anyway, let's go on. 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. You see this particular prayer, this particular thanksgiving that Paul offers all the times. Every book that he writes, there's this particular thanksgiving that Paul offers. And, you know, it's, it's instructive and it suggests something to us. It suggests that at the time, Paul laboring so much to get people saved and to bring them to the knowledge of Christ. Paul laboring so much to get people saved and to bring them to the knowledge of Christ. As he's laboring, every single person that he gets saved and that is stable in Christ would have been like a major achievement for him in his heart. He would have considered it such a big thing that one person or a group of people, he preached the gospel to them. And when he left, they did not just forget and enter the world and go back to where they were coming from. You know, you know when he preaches the gospel to the people and he sets them straight and he leaves the place, obviously, it always gave him great joy to hear that they were still doing well in the faith. Hallelujah. So that means that when a believer stays in the faith and is stabilized in the faith, from the apostle's perspective, it's actually a very precious thing. It's something worth giving God thanks for. It's something that should give us joy. Because it's a precious thing. It's a big deal. When you grow up in a society where a lot of people are Christians, and then there are a lot of people that are Christians, we don't know who is a Christian, and everybody has Christian families, and we have a lot of organizations that call themselves Christian, you know, and all those kinds of things. These kinds of things can, you can, you know, it's easy to lose track of how precious this thing is. But you see Apostle Paul constantly talking about how that, um, you know, Whenever believers are still stable, whenever they still love God and they still love the saints, it's something that, you know, always gives Apostle Paul great joy. Hallelujah. He now says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Praise God. You see, what he now says is that he's now praying that by... Um, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. He now says that, you know, so, you know, there's some versions that will say by the sharing of your faith, right? And then, so when you say, some versions will say by this, like NKJ will say by the sharing of your faith, and the sharing of your faith there will look like as if by the evangelism of your faith, like teaching your faith with people that um, you, you become effective in, in, in teaching your faith with, to other people, sharing your faith with other people by reason of the fact that, you know, he said that the sharing of your faith might be factual by the understanding, by the, by the acclaimance of every good thing that is at work in you. That's how the NKJV puts it, right? So when you read like that in NKJV, it looks like as if, um, which is not bad, you know, it's also a good way of looking at it. It says that you will become effective in sharing your faith well with people by acknowledging everything that is inside of you. It's actually a good thing. It's a good thing to talk about, which is a kind of implication of the way NIV has also put it. Right? Sharing your faith with people, teaching people, explaining the gospel to people, is something that you can be effective in when you yourself know what you carry. Because you cannot give what you don't have. Do you understand that? You cannot give what you don't have. That's why the more stable, that's why it is expected that as a believer grows in Christ, 
the believer does more evangelism. Do you know why? It's expected because as you grow in Christ and you become more stable and you become more knowledgeable about what you have in Christ and you become more confident about what you have in Christ, you're supposed, it's supposed to become easier for you to share the gospel with people. So it's an aberration when you have been saved for a long time and the measure of your stability, the measure of your assurance and the measure of your knowledge in what Christ has done in you remains the same. It is understandable if you just got saved and you are afraid to share the gospel with people because you don't know how to answer some questions and you are worried and can you call? But it's weird. If you have spent many years in Christ and it's still the same way, you are not sure. You are still afraid. You are not more effective at sharing your faith with people. Then I even put it like this. He says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith. So, you know, he called him a, a, a fellow soldier earlier. He says, fe our fellow soldier and our fellow worker. So, that's why he's still the same thing as an NKJV. But NIV is deeper, more sophisticated. So, they have a partnership with Paul as fellow ministers of the gospel. He now says that, I pray that your partnership with us, that means our partnership in sharing the gospel, can become deepened. That means that you can do the work of ministry more in it can be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Hallelujah. He says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the people. Praise God. There's another way of reading that verse 6. that actually says that, um, calling to mind our partnership in doing ministry together, calling to mind the work that we have done together as fellow servants, Thinking on it will deepen your understanding of the thing that believers have in common, what we share together in Christ. Hallelujah. So if you know if you want to do by inductive, by inductive reasoning, we're still saying the same thing, right? The more you apply yourself in Christ, the more you labor in Christ, the more you grow in Christ, your knowledge and stability of what believers have, what we have in Christ, is supposed to become stronger. And by reason of that, your partnership in the gospel should also become more effective. Do you understand that? Did you guys hear what I just said? By acknowledging, by knowing what Christ has done, your partnership in the work of the ministry is supposed to also become deeper. As you grow in Christ, your knowledge of Christ should increase and your labor in ministry should also increase. So it's an aberration. When you have stayed long in Christ and your, the way you minister to people remains the same all through that period. So it is safe to say that the, one of the greatest markers, one of the greatest evidence of spiritual growth is evangelism. One of the greatest markers, one of the most important indices, one of the most important fruits of someone who is growing spiritually is someone who shares the gospel, who partners in the ministry of the gospel. If you have not been sharing the gospel, that's what I was telling you guys earlier, that the mark of seniority in the kingdom of God 
the mark of depth in the kingdom of God is how much you have labored for Christ, not how much your gifting is. If you are a very gifted person, you teach, you know everything in teaching, you have certain fruits of the Spirit that follow you easily, but you are not a partner in the ministry of the gospel. You don't share the gospel. You don't labor in Christ. You are not growing spiritually. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I just said now? Mm. Yes. The marker of spiritual growth is evangelism. If you cannot preach the gospel, you are a baby. And so that's why someone who is not as eloquent at us as us in doing apologetics and doing all the things that we do now, in his lifetime, at the age of 80, in his lifetime, took a body of Christians from a number of a few hundreds to literal millions in one lifetime. In one lifetime. Literally millions of people saved. Millions of people now confessed in Nicene Creed because of that man's ministry. Millions of people have become more stable in Christ. They know Christ more. And millions of people are now stable enough that they are now sharing their own faith with other people. They might not know Greek and Hebrew as much as we do. But that is ministry. That's why he is our Baba. It's not because of the amount of moves that we do. It's not because we rejoice in the Holy Spirit very well and they don't. It's not because we sing in the Spirit and they don't sing in the Spirit. The mark of spiritual growth is how much you have done in the gospel of Christ. That is the reason why when you are old, I'm talking physically speaking now, this analogy is a physical analogy. When you grow older and you are in your 50s, your child has higher IQ than you. Do you know that? Your child has higher IQ than you. The things that you could not do at the age of four, your child is doing it now. If you see a four-year-old child handling iPad, you'll be surprised. By the time they are 20, 21, they can do something, they can calculate, they have gifts and abilities. It does not mean that because they can solve for that mass or they not use iPad more than you, that that means that they are, they are older than you or they are more mature than you. Do you understand that? The abilities of a child does not make the child senior to the parents. Hallelujah. This is very, very important for us to say. That's why Yoruba culture will say that your, your child can have as many, as many clothes as you as you do, but cannot have as many rags. <laughs> That's deep. It's instructive. It's a lesson worth noting. Hallelujah. Praise God. So you should ask yourself a serious question. You think you are growing spiritually because you've been to church regularly. Have you been sharing your faith with people? How instant are you in doing that? How zealous are you in doing that? Let's go on. I have a lot to say today, so let me just quickly go so that I don't stay too long. Therefore, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as one other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So, there's something about honor, Christian honor. And I told you guys before, that proper honor in the body of Christ is when the privilege and the responsibility, when they match. For every assignment, for every responsibility, 
there are privileges that are attached to it to enable you carry out that responsibility. Are you with me? For every responsibility, for every purpose, there are privileges attached to that purpose, to that responsibility, that enable you to do that responsibility. Now, those privileges are, can be enjoyed, but they are primarily for the reason of enabling you to carry out that work. Problem emanates when there's a mismatch between the responsibility and the privilege that's supposed to enable you to do that responsibility. If the privilege is more than the responsibility, what you have is hero worship and tyranny. If the privilege is less than the responsibility, what you have is dishonor. So privilege and responsibility are meant to match. What makes them match is that the privilege stays within the boundaries of the responsibility. So a man is your pastor. His responsibility is to enable you to have spiritual growth. That means that the privileges that the person will have over your life are the privileges that enable him to have spiritual, and that enable you to grow, him to help you grow spiritually. Not more than that. For example, the privilege of rubbing your body as a female is, a, is outside of his responsibility. The person that has the privilege of rubbing your body is your husband. Because his responsibility is to sacrifice himself to you and give you due, um, due benefits as a husband. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I just said now? So, that privilege of touching you inappropriately is for somebody else. It's outside of the scheme of his words, responsibility. So, when his privilege passes the responsibility, what you have is a tyrannical pastor. But when the privilege is lower than the responsibility, a man is laboring over you in word and prayer, taking care of you, checking you and doing everything, but you don't honor the man. You don't give to the man, and the man is slaving away. What you have is what? Dishonor. Do you understand that? Do you guess what I just, what I just said now? Now, the mark of, a, of an honorable elder is the ability to make sure that you maintain that match even when the people that you are dealing with, eh, they want to cause a mismatch. That's what Apostle Paul has demonstrated here. Now, there's something very, very interesting. Let's, let's go into a bit of context. At this time in the world, hmm, people could own other people. And those people would be working for them as if they don't have a status of their own. There's something very, very interesting, and we'll talk about it now. Now, before we go into the scripture and slavery stuff, let me just, let me stay here. There's something happens. Paul is now demanding of a Christian to completely let go of that societal paradigm. So a man has a slave. It is his right as a person. He, the person owes him. It is his duty. He owns the person. Paul now says, I want to make some requests from you. I have the right to order you. But rather, I will plead with you as an elder. What Apostle Paul is demonstrating there is that I am your minister, I am your pastor. I am the one that the Lord has set over you. And because I am the one that the Lord has set over you, I have responsibilities over your life. Those responsibilities give me certain privileges. And those privileges enable me to make some requests of you. But I will be careful. I will not let the privileges that I have go beyond. In fact, if it seems like as if 
it is approaching the boundaries of the responsibility and it will get to the point where that boundary can be disputed, where it can lead to an argument. I need you guys to focus on me. Where, where there can be a dispute, I will rather let the privilege be less than the responsibility for the sake of being upright in Christ. And Apostle Paul employs this, this um, particular disposition a lot in the, in the epistles. You see him talking about rights that he has. He has certain privileges as an elder. He has certain privileges as an apostle. But he will not use the privilege to the end. Because when privileges and responsibilities are beginning to come close to each other, there's a sense of friction, especially from people. People begin to sense or begin to perceive a sense of friction because people are growing spiritually, people have different kind of thoughts, people have different kind of understanding. And so, for example, the amount of understanding of how much privilege a pastor has over your life is actually a matter of how much you understand the responsibilities of a pastor. So that's why the more you grow spiritually, the more you understand the responsibilities of a pastor, the more privilege you give your pastor in your life. Have you noticed it? Do you understand that? The more mature you are, the more you understand the responsibility of a pastor, the more you find yourself expanding the privilege that your pastors have. But the smaller you are, the more childish you are, the less the responsibilities you think of your pastor having. And therefore, the less the amount of privilege that you are willing to give them. So that's why it is a spiritually mature that can submit themselves to a pastor, that can tell them what to do. But it's babies that cannot hear that their pastors are telling them what to do. Do you understand that? If you ever hear someone say, all these pastors, can you call this person is a child. The more you grow and the more you understand spiritual things, the more privilege you tend to want to give to ministers. So as a pastor, understanding this, when you look at someone that is a babe and you are, you are anticipating or you foresee the possibility of the person misunderstanding the amount of privilege that you should have in their lives, what a responsible elder should do is to limit the privilege on purpose for the sake of peace and righteousness. Do you understand that? So that's why you see Apostle Paul, when he's talking to babes like the Corinthians and all that, or whenever he anticipates a kind of conflict, he will say, let me reduce my privilege and let me beg you instead of ordering you so that you can understand what I'm saying. <laughs> this thing has plenty of implications. That means, if you have a wise pastor, if you notice that your pastor is not making demands of you, it's because he doesn't reach you. Do you understand that? It means that pastor is not confident of your understanding of the responsibilities that he has and therefore the amount of privilege. That's why wise pastors treat people differently. There are some things now that some people will come and tell me. I'll say, you are crazy, go and sit down. There are some people, when they come and tell me the same thing, I'll say, yeah, yeah, okay, no problem. It's not because I don't know what is right. It's because I'm an elderly person. <laughs> like Paul said, that's what Paul was saying here. See, I'm an elderly person, I don't want to fight. Let me just beg you. Do you understand that? If your pastor is careful around you, it's not a good sign. If your pastor is careful around you, it is not a good sign. If you see that your pastor finds it easy to abuse you and make demands of you and shout at you in certain ways because he trusts you, 
because he has looked at you or, or look at you and he has seen what you are capable of and therefore can trust you and can let himself go with you. If your pastor is being careful around you, does not want to clear you, it's because he's still looking at you. He doesn't trust you fully yet. Church, do you understand what I'm saying? I learned this thing with my own pastor. I learned it with him. I, I learned it that in the earlier years, there are some things that will say, he will just let it go. And I noticed that as the years went on, he was becoming more confident to make some demands. And I noticed that whenever we're in a, a time in our relationship that he's being careful, ah, I know that my mind, his, his mind is getting far from me. I don't know. At some periods, there was a, there was a period, you know, let me know, let's not bother, this is not, it's not just confidential here, but the point is this, there was a period where yeah, I noticed that he was getting careful. Say, ah, something is off. Church, I get what I'm saying to you. So Paul now says, I'm an elderly person. Let me, let me appeal to you. Verse 10. That I, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now, he has become useful to both you and to me. Praise God. That's why there are some comments that we make of people. That is not necessarily that we are abusing them. When we say something sometimes, it's not that we are abusing them. This thing is very difficult to understand. It's very difficult to communicate. That sometimes that some things are just comments. They are descriptions, not insults. When a person has a master and he steals money from the master and runs away, what is he? Is he not a useless slave? He's useless now. But he now got saved and now became useful. So Paul said he was useless before. Now he's a useful person. Praise God. Do you understand that? So if you are behaving certain times, certain ways in church, and I say, you are not being useful to us. Eh? Right? It means it's not an abuse. Let me just continue. Praise God. Verse 12. He now says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he will take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. Do you see that? You see him shrinking his privileges? So that any favor you do would not seem forced, but will be what? Voluntary. Apostle Paul is being careful. Because the moment people begin to feel any sense of tyranny, what happens is that they they seal themselves off. They seal themselves off from you as a minister. But your goal, your entire purpose as a minister is to reach people. What is the point of trying to reach people that have closed their minds off to you? So that's why at certain times, a pastor will have to relinquish some privileges for the sake of the people. Do you understand that? Sometimes you relinquish some privileges for the sake of the people. Sometimes it is your right to say, you are supposed to give me double honor and support me in the ministry as someone that is laboring over you in word and talk about prophetic offering. It's your right. But you are not being wise to do it when you gather a bunch of people that have, that have given fatigue, that are exhausted, or they don't understand giving yet. That's not the time you start proving apostolic rights. Do you understand that? Because there's no point when you have offended the people that you want to bless. Church, all together. All of you that are going to be ministers, you must understand this. It's not every time you're proving ministerial rights 
I'm the pastor, I'm your pastor. Sometimes you just leave people. Hallelujah. Verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a while, for a little while, was that you might have him back forever. So Apostle Paul suggests here that even when the guy ran away, God was working all things together for his good. God turned that, you know, conflict, that bad situation, and worked it together for a situation where he can now have his slave with him forever. So the guy ran away with whatever he stole and came back to him a born-again Christian. Hallelujah. He ran away and met Jesus. So all things worked together for what's good. Verse 16. So you can receive him back to no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, but as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, this is one of the important parts that I'm going to stay with. And this is one of this is the major lesson from tonight's preaching. In John chapter 18. In John chapter 18 verse 36. Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate and look at what he said. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. We just finished a series on the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the place of Jesus' manifestation and influence hmm, is not of this world. It may be in this world, but it is not of this world. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Listen. One of the things that the critics of Christianity will say very ignorantly, some people who are very ignorant, they will say, why didn't the Bible expressly condemn slavery? Your question is because you are not smart enough. If you are smart enough, you should have increased your question. And you should have asked more questions. You should have said things like, why didn't Jesus expressly advocate for democracy? While we are being you know, foolish and silly, let's, why don't we go all the way? Why didn't Jesus advocate for socialism? Why didn't Jesus advocate for capitalism? There is always a tendency from both, both, from both extremes of the understanding of the God's word to want to make the kingdom of Jesus to be a kingdom of this earth. Jesus did not come to come and change the societal structures of this world. Jesus came to bring his kingdom inside us. Jesus came to change lives. It is the lives that are changed that will change the society. Do you understand that? So his kingdom is at work in us. It is when his kingdom is at work in us and is in at work in a critical number or a critical mass of us that we begin to see that extension of the kingdom in the society. 
So, the fact that, because Jesus' is, Jesus kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came to change lives. So, and that is the only successful way of changing this world, by changing people. If you want to change this world, you have to change people. That's why there are some messy situations. When you begin to understand social politics and all this social economics and other things, there are some messy situations that you get to that you will find that the only solution is for people to become better people because there is no external structure you can create that can bring a good thing out of that situation. God, this thing I'm seeing now. Hey, God, help me. If you are someone that is paying attention, there are a lot of things in this world that you would have found out cannot become better by creating laws and structure around them. Because once people are bad, that situation will always be bad. A lot of international relations problems and a lot of international fights problems, at the end of the day, you will see both sides will say, is my right, is my right. And because of that, they're not fighting one, killing each other. You cannot come from outside. And whenever you now come from outside to try to make situations to solve the problem, you now discover that whatever you are doing is just making it worse. Because you cannot externally change the situation of me, of the world. If you want to change the world, you have to change people. It's the same thing with divorce and bad marriages. You cannot come from outside and give a couple rules on how to work together. The only solution is for both of them's head to be correct. If there's a problem with the people, that marriage cannot be good. So this is the reason why, from the law of Moses until the end, what God was doing was fixing humanity. The, the process of fixing humanity involves you acknowledging humanity's agency. And by reason of acknowledging humanity's agency, it means that you have to permit some things for the sake of the purpose of changing man. Do you understand that? So that's why Jesus will not come and say, all of you that are slaves, stop. You know Jesus will come and say, get saved. After you get saved, I want you to know that the slave is your brother in Christ. You cannot own him. <laughs> Do you understand that? He say, I want to divorce, I want to divorce, I want to divorce. You just say, no problem. The way I will change you is by making your head to be correct. So, Jesus have said, Jesus, Jesus said, that you can divorce if you want to because I acknowledge the fact that your heart, your heart is hardened. So, I cannot stop you without going back on my promise to you that you are made in my image and you will have the ability to make choices. For me not to allow that, I have to go back on my word. But I'm faithful. I'll never go back on my word. I'm the one that said I made you in my image and therefore I'll honor it. You know what I'll do? I'll do a work that will soften your heart. So yes, divorce is allowed. But if you are a child of God, you will not want to divorce. And so this is the reason why at the end of the way, at the end of the day, which culture stopped slavery? Christian culture. Jesus did not come to come and say, this is the way you should organize your societies. Don't do slavery. Go with democracy. If you want to do totalitarianism, 
make sure it is totalitarian. He didn't come and do that. He came to fix people. Because when you fix people, they will fix their societies. Do you understand that? So, it's easy to see this and explain to a skeptic that is looking at the Bible and saying, why didn't Jesus condemn um, slavery and tell them to end slavery? Jesus did. He ended the work, the spirit that causes slavery. He ended it in the gospel. How did he end it? He ended it by, first of all, breaking the wall of part partition between all the socioeconomic classes. And so in Galatians chapter 3, he came and now said, there is neither slave nor free. You are all one in Christ. The mentality that made slavery possible was the mentality that someone else is apart from you. And the person's um, um, fundamental dignity is different from your own. is less than your own. You have to dehumanize a person before you can enslave the person. Do you understand that? You have to dehumanize a person before you can enslave the person. Jesus came and said, there is never slave not free. All of you are brothers in Christ. So imagine having a slave that you guys will not go for believers meeting. You will not speak in tongues. Interpret the tongue and look at you. Say, I have a word for you. I have a word for you. <laughs> you cannot enslave the person. You cannot. Imagine having a slave that God has called to be an apostle in your house. Is it possible? You cannot. So, what the gospel came to do and what we see Apostle Paul doing with the air, which is actually what the body of Christ was doing, was that it came to preach Christ. And by preaching Christ and changing the hearts of Christians, that is the spirit. That, that's why the people that the abolitionists were Christians. Obviously, there were some mad Christians that are, um, you know, omalis, jati jatis, that were trying to still enslave people. But that's beside the point. There will always be people that are among us but are not from us. The point is that the abolitionists, the people that ended slavery, the people that fought for slavery to end, were Christians. Church, do you understand what I'm saying to you? But there's also another side to this instruction. If the kingdom of this world is not the kingdom of our Lord, so to speak, if the kingdom of Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, that also tells us that the idea that we are expanding God's kingdom by taking over socioeconomic spaces cannot follow. Did you hear what I just said now? If the kingdom of Jesus is not the kingdom of this world and the kingdom is what is God in us, then it means that you cannot expand the kingdom of God by taking over the political world or taking over the media world or taking over the IT, please, what are the seven kingdoms that they take over, please? This is Bible study. Don't shake your head at me, Jerry. What are the other ones? The education world. There are seven. Entertainment world. You don't expand the kingdom by taking over those worlds because this kingdom is not of his. There's only one way to expand God's kingdom. What is it? Evangelism. Get more men saved. There's an impulse to say Nigeria is not working and Nigeria will work if we have Christians in power, but it's not true. Okay, well, it's half true. That's why it's appealing. It's half true. That's why it's appealing. The Bible actually tells us that when the righteous rule, the people will be happy. So really and truly, if a Christian, a child of God that is a Christian, that is living from the scripture, if he's the one at the helm of affairs, it is true, Nigeria will be better. 
you understand that? There are some stupid things that will not be happening because the person is following the scriptures. But that is not what to solve the problem. The person that is going to be the good person you are talking about that will be a Christian, someone has to get him saved. Do you understand that? The way to expand the kingdom of God is the same way the apostles taught us. It is by getting people saved. It is by reshaping people's values and reconciling people back to God. It is when you... That's, that is the reason why if you are not doing evangelism and the, the Christians in a society are still very few, eh? they will persecute you. Even if one of you becomes president, they will persecute you out of the place. Do you understand that? They will persecute you out of the place. That's why a lot of people can claim that they are Christians and they will go into power and be behaving like unbelievers. The solution is not to, take, is not to become the MDs of banks. The solution is that you die at the cleaner working with the MD of the bank gets him saved. Do you understand that? That's why Apostle Paul, when he was praying, first Timothy chapter 2, he said, now I want all of us to be lifting up hands and praying for all men that are authority. Because God wants all men to be what? Saved. And to come to what? The knowledge of truth. Do you see that? Do you see what I just said now? The way to expand the kingdom is by getting men saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. It's when you save many people that the ones among us that want to go to media will go to media and get people saved there and turn the place around. Do you understand that? It's not by saying, um, um, I must become president. If I become president, I will grow the kingdom of God. You cannot grow the kingdom of God by becoming president. It's not a kingdom of this world. The same way Jesus did not come to spread the gospel by taking over the kingdom. The same way Jesus did not come to change the societal problems by taking over the world, but rather by preaching the gospel is the same way you too will change your society by doing what? Doing what Jesus did. What Paul did. What Peter did. How did they change their society? Reshape values and bring men to the knowledge of God. Do you understand that? See, let me tell you guys something. There is no way to see kingdom takeover. There is no way to preach kingdom takeover without you ultimately leading into covetousness and materialism. There is no way. I've seen this thing happen so many times. People that I love and respect, and so I'm not despising anybody. It's not spite. I've seen it happen so many times with people that I respect that in the same message, as you are preaching kingdom takeover, you will preach materialism and by the end of the message, you try to speak against materialism. I've seen it happen so many times. The cognitive dissonance is bad. Do you know why? If you preach to people that aspiring to certain earthly, earthly positions is an evidence of the grace of God, it is the evidence that God's power is at work in you. When you make achieving certain earthly statuses, to, if you make it an ideal, what happens is that you make those earthly achievements, you elevate them in people's hierarchy of values. The effect is that people will rate their successes in Christ according to how much of those earthly accomplishments that they have. That is the reason why you invite people to preach in church just because of their earthly accomplishments and these guys are wife-peters and alcoholics that were never sure they are saved. Do you understand that? 
That's why it leads to that deformity. When you say kingdom takeover, God wants you to head MTN. God wants you to take over Zenith Bank. You organize meetings and you will call the MD of one bank. That one has three wives. And all kinds of rubbish he's doing. Smoking drugs and doing all kinds of things. Do you understand that? There is no way to preach it that you will not elevate material things as an ideal to strive towards. When you begin to preach like that, there will be no place for a Christian not being rich. Everybody will find themselves in a constant state of flux and direction looking only towards the day that they will achieve material things. And so you have this kind of cultures where you begin to have people giving testimony according to the material things that they have, whether it is legitimate or illegitimate. That's the culture that makes someone come to say that he bowed down to whiskey because uh, there is grace on whiskey. You know it's because I'm gentle on Twitter now. The thing I wanted to say when I saw that thing was worse than that. I say, ah, I'm an elderly person. What is that? He said, I recognize grace. Whiskey. Whiskey. Is there another whiskey? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it got saved like yesterday and I did not know. <laughs> the same star boy. He's a star. <laughs> Since he said, recognize grace. That's why I'm about. What is wrong with you? That statement did not come from isolation. It comes from a Nigerian Pentecostal culture of making the value of a man proportional to the amount of material things that he owns. A direct antithesis of what Jesus said. Now, I'm not saying that that fellow is not humble. That's not my argument. My, my argument is that that statement is a stupid statement. You know, I told you it's not abuse, it's description. That statement does not make sense. But that's what happens. If you say we are meant to take over kingdoms, what happens is that that means that our efforts will be compared, the yardstick will be against people that are taking over kingdoms materially. Do you understand that? So you'll find yourself competing in the same arena for the same kinds of things that whiskey is competing for. Do you understand that? That is what happens. Many people have not reasoned this thing to the end when they are saying it. There's a, is a, is a, is a temptation to just say, this is the way to take over, let's take over, let's take over. But the problem is that many people don't think through when they say some things. If Jesus hated slavery and did not remove slavery in this world by coming to tell us to remove it, but rather by changing people, me, I'm telling you, you are not taking over any kingdom any other way than changing people's lives. There is no other way. We are pilgrims in this world. We are citizens of heaven. From where we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus. It is not possible. Ce n'est pas possible. We don't expand the kingdom by, you say, now say, eh, but the gospel needs money to expand. Without money, the gospel cannot, what are you talking about? The gospel cannot expand without money. We need money for the gospel to expand. 
the gospel can, if what you mean by expansion of the gospel is stage lights and smoke and fog screen and big building with AC, I'm not saying those things are bad, but if that is what you are defining as the gospel, yes, you need money. But if you are talking about people coming to the knowledge of Christ, eh, the money that you need is not that plenty one that we must all have. There is a normal level of money that is enough. How did the gospel spread in the first four centuries before Christianity became mainstream and the only people that were Christians were poor people? How did the gospel spread? How did the gospel spread to 20-something countries within 50 years, the, the death of, between 30 years of Jesus' death? 20-something countries with leg and donkey. With all the millions of dollars that you gathered, how many countries have you spread the gospel to? What are you talking about? You say the gospel cannot spread. What are, how much is the coming down? The money that is needed to spread the gospel. Eh? Yes, it is true that the money is needed to spread the gospel. But let me tell you what the, that money is. That money is the money that will empower the preachers of the gospel. Not anything more than that. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Because I'm not trying to tell you that money is not involved. Obviously, money is involved. But the money... It has a limit. The money needed is not has a limit. And do you know what the limit is? The limit is as much as it can empower the minister to preach the gospel. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I just said now? As much as it's required to empower the minister, stage lights, this light does not empower to preach the gospel. Do you understand that? out together. See, if you want to expand the kingdom, if Nigeria is bad and the thing is catching, because you know you guys know that the thing they affect me. You guys know I love this country. And you know how much the thing caught me. If anybody should have the temptation of preaching kingdom takeover, I am number one candidate. But let me tell you the truth. <laughs> the only way that this country can change is if we preach the gospel. You see all those people in Abuja, they need to get saved. That's the only way. We have to reshape their values. We have to reconcile them to God. That's the only way. It's not by telling you that until you become the MD of MTN, something is wrong with your life. God is calling you to something big. Dream big. If they see, it's not for everybody. Let me tell you something now. It's not for everybody. It's not. It's when you are walking in Christ that you get to certain points that all those childish infatuation of, I want to become a billionaire. I want to become a billionaire. I see myself having yachts. If those things have not died as you are growing spiritually, something is wrong. The problem with preaching the gospel like that is that it keeps all those childish, maternal ambitions. It keeps them alive. Something happens when you have found the kingdom, like we said on Sunday. You will go and sell everything that you have for the sake of that kingdom. So all those earthly ambitions of wanting to be materially big for its own sake it dies naturally that's why someone can have their function in the old to say god don't let me be richer than i need so i will not forget you but don't let me be poor so that i'll be still do you understand that that statement is not the statement of someone that does not have faith he cannot dream big in christ see what, any dream that is bigger than you is not of god any dream that is smaller than you is not because god is big if the dream is the dream was How do we, what do we want to do now? So, everybody that is a child of God, that is a teacher now, they are not doing the purpose of God for their life. Eh? If you are a nurse, you are not doing the purpose of God for your life. 
That's the reason why people will go to Canada and lose your salvation immediately. Because they've told you to dream the dream, and then you go to Canada, you're a nurse, and you're living large, and you can build house in Nigeria. Then you discover that life is not about... As you grow in Christ, materialism is supposed to also die. It's supposed to die naturally. What will happen is that as you grow in Christ, the Lord and the things of the kingdom, the things of the spirit, they satisfy you more and more. And the things of the earth satisfy you what? Less and less. You cannot force it. It's something that happens by spiritual growth. Do you understand that? What is the solution to, you see, Kai, oh God, I don't want to talk too much. There are some things where if people are not saved in that place, nothing can work well. Nothing can work well. See, so let me just continue. Praise God. Are we together? Verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome me him as you welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. So that's where we suspected that he took something, right? He says, um, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hands. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Hallelujah. Praise God. So you see that the, 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 the elders have privileges. A wise elder will measure their privilege so as not to offend the people. But, you know, when it's appropriate, you enforce your privileges. So you remind him. Even you yourself will have been in the world. <laughs> so this morning, I said, you know, just this morning I tweeted something about Pastor Adibi. I don't know, I think it's the birthday thing. It just got to me. I just found myself in the middle of the night around 3 a.m. this night just thinking about my life. There's somebody that is pastoring millions of people. Hey, God. You know? So, ah, that man's life is worthy of honor. Pastor Debo's life is worthy of honor. Let me not be gushing or doing my message. You know, I was just thinking of that. And I said that, ah, a man that is responsible for the growth. And I tweeted it. One auntie now went and replied the tweet I made. I, I, I tweeted that um, Pastor Debo's life is worthy of honor. A man that is responsible for. Um, saving and establish something like that, establishing literally millions of people. Literally, it's not an exaggeration. Literally millions of people, right? And then I think I'll say, is this, um, the ones until now went there and replied, and I said, only God is responsible for saving people or something like that. But let's just thank God for his life or something like that. Do you understand that? I'm an elderly person. I've changed. I'm, are you not happy for me? Thank you. Uh-huh. Normally, that kind of response requires like two tweets of instruction. Instruction in righteousness. I just said, okay, ma, thank you. You know what I wanted to talk about? No, ma, what I wanted to see? I wanted to talk about this part. This part that just passed. Do you know what Paul told somebody? He said, you owe me your life. He says, it's only God that saves. Paul said, you owe me your... Some people owe Pastor Adeboye their lives. Where will you be? You know, read Romans chapter 10. He said, he said, how will they be saved if somebody does not go? How will, some, how, will some, how will they go if someone does not call them? It is a man that saves a man. Has an angel preached the gospel to you before? Even the people that Jesus showed up to in the Middle East by themselves, they will see God. Paul was on the way to Damascus. Jesus showed up and gave him the bashing of his life. 
He still went to go and meet Ananias. Ananias raised and say, Your eyes are open in the name of Jesus. Receive it. Let me tell you what God said. God said they are going to suffer for this kingdom. Let me baptize you. He says, You owe me your life. And he said, It's only God that raised Okay. So it's only God that's responsible. What is that? Is that humility or what? What's that? Paul said, you, let's read it again. Verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I know what your life was. You know, there are some times when this thing can lead to offense for a minister. It can lead to offense. Especially when you are knowledgeable and you have, you have experience and you've seen how many people's lives have turned out. And you know a particular person that you know the way his life was going. You know the way her life was going. You now preach the gospel. The person is now sound. The person will now one day wake up and say, eh, let me speak from my own experience. The one that the one that he pained me that time is not paining me again. Oh, in school, you saw these young jambat guys that will preach the gospel to that do not know anything. You know, God them saving my fellowship, God them established and everything. They finish secondary school, um, they finish university, and they go to serve. And because maybe you've gotten a good job and just one or two years of not being under your ministry, they tweet at you and say, "Hey, bro." You think pain? I told you now. You remember? I say he wore, he wore. I mean, he bro, eh? <laughs> no problem. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> That's life. I mean, bro. He say, hey, bro, can you call? You want to disagree with one thing? And I said, hey, bro. Ha. He wore, he wore. <laughs> you know, if I, if I, I don't want to mention some details about what we did for the person, people that know, who might know the person, say he wore. I mean, he bro. It's not your fault, though. It's not your fault at all. Paul told him, you owe me your very self. So, yes, our Pastor Adebo is responsible for the salvation of many people. God used him, but the man yielded to God. Do you understand? The man yielded to God. Of course, God is sovereign. Of course, it's God that did everything. But the man yielded to God. Hallelujah. Church, are we together? That's what I was saying. That that one, obviously, she's a child. The person that said that is a child. You can tell. Because that person does not understand ministry. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? The person does, obviously does not understand ministry. Verse 20. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me. Hallelujah. Because I hope to be restored to you in answer of your words, prayer. May your pastor trust you this much one day. You not say amen. Ah, this journalist was also sly also. They did not say amen. Those of you online, these ones are not serious. May your pastor trust you this much one day. He said, prepare a guest room for me. Hallelujah. He said, prepare. That's, that's honor. Prepare a guest room for me. Not the one that you're calling somebody, bro. Hey, bro. Verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. 
as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. So please, one of the, the, you know, one of the central teachings of the book of Philemon is that the way God will do things on the earth, he says, um, um, our, father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The way the will of God is done is by the expansion of the kingdom. It is not a kingdom of this world. It is the growth of them who are like Christ on the earth. Do you understand that? Do you get that? That's what will make things become better. See, let me talk, let me just say something in a few, um, in a few minutes. There's a reason why there's a particular portion of the world that seems to become, compared to all of us now, they, they didn't follow everything perfectly, you know, just like human beings are. But they are the ones that inherited the heritage of the scriptures the most. The, it's their culture that was most affected by scriptural principles. Those societies are the most peaceful. Do you understand that? They are the most prosperous. They are the ones where human rights matter the most. They, have, they are not well too. They have things that they've done. But when they act, they act in contradistinction to the principles that they espouse. The societies that are best are the societies that were most affected or that their ancestors were most affected by the scriptures. That's why science and technology came to them. They will not be saying that they have white privilege or white privilege or not. What they have is um, scriptural privilege. There's a quantum leap that the gospel gave them. Do you understand? Knowing Jesus and knowing the scripture and being able to study the scriptures, it gave their society a quantum leap so that societies on the other side of the world that have been building ships like naval carriers for like 3,000 years, that have been doing all kinds of things, inventing malaria, for two, malaria medicine for 2,000 years, you know, inventing gunpowder, all kinds of smart technology on the Far East. They've been, civilizations that have been doing well, they still do not have that kind of quantum leap. When the scriptures and God's value system are, are predominant in your culture, hmm? that culture will do well. That's why the Bible says that righteousness exalts what? A nation. But sin is a what? Reproof. Reproach. So what makes a society better is what? Righteousness. It's not a Christian becoming the MD of Access Bank. Do you understand that? His kingdom is not of this world. If you want Nigeria to be better, go to Abuja and do ministry. Right? The, the future of this nation is in the hands of the pastors and Christians in Abuja. You know, by the time Yamini gets some senators genuinely saved, that they love God. You know, genuinely saved. You know, there'll be a change. Reshaping values. Getting people's values to be aligned with the scriptures and reconciling men to God. That is how to change the world. Note that I have not said here that, that there is no place for Christians having lofty positions. It is possible. If the Lord calls you to those places, of course you will go. Do you understand that? But it is not for everybody to aspire to. 
Do you understand? It's not for everybody. See, some of you need to give yourself rest. Give yourself rest and stop chasing what does not exist. Give yourself rest. I know we've heard many messages that make it sound like as if your worth as a person, your purpose as a person, how you say purpose, purpose, your worth as a person, your purpose as a person is how much you can attain stuff. So, you know, Christians that are the ones that are the MDs of HM are the ones who invite to speak in meetings. So, if you're a secondary school teacher, you are not achieving much. Those are the ones that are achieving much for God. That thing is not good. I'm begging you, if you can hear me, I, see, that thing is not good. That thing is not good. Please, let's stop it. Let's not qualify people to do ministry on the basis of material things that, they've, that, they've, that, they are, that they have. You have implicitly sub- suggested that the grace of God on their life is directly proportional to the amount of material things that they have, which is the opposite of what Jesus... Do you understand that? Let's not do that. I guarantee you in this TC, if it's possible, it may happen that the time will come when politicians will come into our church and they will sit down where the space was available when they came to church. I guarantee you that. I guarantee you. No special seats because you're a big man. You give your offering, you give it and put it in your pockets. No come and harass anybody here. Do you understand that? No come and harass anybody here. If whoever invites you to speak, it cannot be ministry speaking. It will be vocational speaking. So when we say we gather our doctors together in the church, you want to talk, we'll now say, okay, which doctor knows work very well? Choose the doctor that knows work. Let him teach. Do you understand that? That's where you say, uh-huh. uh, all of you that are IT, we want to help you people um, so that you can do your work very well. Come, gather yourselves together. Which of you knows IT very well? Come and talk. And I say you come to church, having a special program, can unleash and break forth. So, Church, all together. And when does this note to this question? All these decades, the church in Nigeria has never been richer. The church in Nigeria has never been more powerful. Christians have never held influence in this country as much as they do now. For Christ's sake, we have the senior pastor of a major church contesting for presidency. Christians have never had more power in this country than they do now. Is Nigeria better? Let's be telling ourselves the truth. Is Nigeria better? Your instinct will begin to say it's because we're not enough. Don't worry. Keep. Continue. Keep saying it's not enough. Let's be, be enough. Don't worry. A time is coming. You will see someone that calls himself Christian, president, vice president, you will see that that's not the solution. The solution is still the same solution that Jesus used, that the apostles used, that all the Christians before now used. Let me even tell you something. The moment you sediment, you concretize the fact that Christianity and worldly things are going hand in hand and they, um, they reinforce each other or they, they are testimonies of each other and you continue, ha, what you are going to lead to will be problem. The offense in the West today, all the offense that they have against Christianity, 
is from the facts of this kingdom takeover that they had in the past. All the offense. When you say it's by Christianity, let's Christianity, okay, let's take over. You know what you're just going to do? All you are going to do is create a system where a lot of liars and thieves will call themselves Christians and take over among you. Then you will get to the point where a pope, a pope, will say the fable of Christ has been most profitable to me. Then borrow. You've known it before. The fable of Christ, that means the bedtime story of Christianity has helped me. You don't ginger my life. Because I used it to, be, to achieve a lot of... That's what will happen. By the time we say eh, Christians should have their own quota, whether the vice president and everything, what you will just get is that the most desperate, violent people will pretend that they are Christians to get to that position. If you want a society to become better, let many of them be believers. True. They don't need to be presidents. Let many of them be real believers in that society. Let the teachers be believers. Let the teachers teach the children in school in the way of the Lord. Let the child come home to parents teaching them the way of the Lord. Let them go to the mall and the supermarket. And many of the people that are meeting in the roads are Christians and believers. They will grow up in a society where someone will drop money. And they will see, because many of them are Christians, they will say, who is none of this money? Nobody will take the money and put it in their pocket. They grow up in that kind of society. You see a society where people that have need, because they are Christians, they will take care of the needy. They grow up in that kind of society. When you have a society where, you know, all these things like we're driving like mad people on the road, you behave like a Christian when you're driving. Children are growing up in that society. What will happen is that you create a society of people that, that that's why you go to some countries. They say, yeah, in that country, all of them have sense. Do you know why? They have sense because they, were grown, they grew up in a culture that was started by some people thousands of years ago who were acting based on Christianity. Did you hear what I just said now? Did you hear what I just said now? So you go to Switzerland, they are very clinical. It's because they grew up in a culture that was built on some foundations. Praise God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let's give God thanks. Let's give God thanks. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.